All right, everybody, welcome to yet another intro to LA Meekly. Pretty straightforward one we got for you this month. We have it all rehearsed. That's it. That's it. Greg, where are you? I've had it. I'm walking out. I hear you. Keep the old heart rate up, buddy. That's not what I mean. I'm walking out like I'm protesting. Protesting? But I thought you were happy here. I'm not. Well, what do you want? <sighs> Civil rights beach party! <laughs> Walk out. Immigration reform! 40-hour work week! Vietnam! Pay equality for women! Institutional racism! Child labor! 14th Amendment! Gay rights! Sick waves! Police brutality! Oh no. Oh no. We've surfed too far. Where are we? Vietnam. What do we do? There's only one thing to do. Another song parody. Hello, everybody. Hello. We couldn't sync that up, but you know what? I okay. did it on purpose. I, I wanted you to look the fool. People respect me for going first. <laughs> He's a brave one. But also the first one in, first one to die. Is that the rules? I thought he who smelt it dealt it. I thought that's the rules we were playing by. You know I smell right now, so I'd appreciate, <laughs> I'd appreciate it if you didn't announce that to all of the people who can't smell me right now. One of us has overstayed the welcome at the Skunk Resort. We ain't talking about Denver, Colorado, buds. <laughs> And I'm not talking about those kind of buds. Welcome to Marijuana Weekly. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, welcome back. Hello, everybody. It's good to hear you. Oh, you Dan- didn't know that we installed those microphones in all of your homes? Oh, everybody snores so gently. <laughs> Until we stop the snoring. Don't we, Brother Gregory? Pillows are not for napping on anymore. <laughs> That's what heaven's clouds are for. Once you pass to the beyond. And we've threatened. <laughs> all of our listeners. Luckily, we don't have enough listeners for it to count as a murder spree, so we're good. <laughs> we could be try- We could take them one by one. Yeah, yeah, they're all misdemeanor charges anyways. <laughs> and Mr. Demeter. <laughs> Funny ma. So it's March. I hope you had a good leap day. Yeah. To honor that, we are going to cover some of the city's biggest marches, protests, demonstrations. Walkouts. Walk-ins, sit-ins, dine-ins, drive-ins. Drive-ins. Each time you go to the drive-in, it's a political statement. I hope you know that. Save your receipts. Save your ticket stubs, please. Give it to your accountants. (laughs) Vote Trump. (laughs) He'll subsidize every movie ticket in this country, as long as you're not Mexican. You you stay home, guys. You stay home. Mexico. (laughs) You stay in the casa. Man, that guy's going to win, isn't he? (laughs) Well, if my vote counts for anything. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody wants him in when he's going to get in. This would be great. (laughs) He's going to bribe the security guard in front of the White House. That's exactly what he's going to do. They're like the British guards, right? The guards (laughs) of the palace? Yeah, you can bribe those. Yeah, for sure. They can't flinch, but you can bribe them. All right, so we're going to get a little political here. 
taxes. What are they for? I mean, I'm not paying them. Are you? Am I supposed to? Why does the government keep calling me? Everybody wants hands out. All I got is two hands. Yeah, this month we're covering famous marches and protests. Any any kind of uh, political stance that was taken by uh, the community members of Los Angeles. We've been covering, oh, not all of them. You know, we found the, every single three. one. Anytime anyone had a political thought, we're going to talk about yep. it. There's so many, but we, we sort of, uh, some of them, you know, didn't really go anywhere. Yeah, there's some that I was very interested in. I've been hearing about since forever. So the, I wanted to actually think about the three. Oh, some of us like to learn new things on oh. this podcast the the three i chose i had never heard anything about yeah i don't know anything about yours neither do i oh no no i thought you were supposed to do mine what are you gonna talk about (laughs) i was gonna just juggle (laughs) cut another one cut another one cut another one i swear i'm doing it we juggle during all episodes we've recorded we're gonna start with the earliest one it's not all gonna go um it's not all gonna go What's the word I'm looking for? Chronologically? Chrono- I was thinking consequentially. Wow, you're dumb. Yeah, keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> the first one I'm going to be talking about is the garment workers strike of 1933. What have they got to strike about? Tell me. It was the fashionable thing. Put stripes on your clothing. It's cute. It's I think cute. you're mispronouncing stripes. Stripes? No. Like Charlie Brown has a crooked strike on his shirt. <laughs> strike, strike, strike. Strike. How, much, how many times do I have to say it? Strike, strike, strike. He strikes at the plate, strikes on my shirt. <laughs> what do we want? Equality. When do we want it? doled out over a century. As you may remember, in the early 1900s, L.A. was not a very union-friendly city, and I ain't talking about those damn Yankees from the North. As a result, conditions for factory workers were what you could call less than ideal. I would call it sweatshop conditions. Ah. And I ain't talking about those relaxation resorts those damn Yankees from the North love. (laughs) Sweatshop was your nickname on the basketball team. You just sweated so much. I was in the sweatshop boys when I was in high school. (laughs) Going into the Depression, the garment industry was one of the biggest in town, the biggest industries there was. During the Depression, it was one of the few businesses that actually flourished and it turned into one of the fastest growing industries in LA. Everyone needs clothes, even if they don't have the money to wear them. On an average, everyone was naked during the Depression. Most people. I knew it. That's why there's no pictures from them. Because they're all naked. Also because film was expensive and nobody could afford it. But also because they were naked. No, it was because you take a picture of a naked person and the film burns. At least that's what happened to me. The witch. (laughs) You wouldn't know. (laughs) On an average day, there were some 3,000 workers in the between 150 to 200 dress factories that were downtown in places like the Platte or Anjak Fashion Building that is now between Two Boots Pizza and the Orpheum. Oh, really? That's the building. During the height of the clothing season, there were closer to 7,500 workers on any given day in these factories. Now, these workers were all women. And of these women, 75% were Latina, mostly Mexican. The rest were Italian, Jewish, Russian, or otherwise white. The garment industry was taking in three million dollars a year and to stay afloat in such a competitive field factories had to keep their prices low and the way they did this was by keeping production costs down translate production costs for their workers uh, mm-hmm. keeping them down. you're just a tool in the factory working nine to five <laughs> <laughs> working nine to nine if you're lucky and then some and no overtime no family You might lose a finger. (laughs) We're not paying. Call a lawyer. You don't have one. Don't talk amongst yourselves. (laughs) And you can't speak English. Don't know what I'm saying. 
The women weren't paid per hour they were in a factory, but rather per hour they were actually physically working. So they'd get a bundle of materials, uh-huh. then they'd clock in, do their job, and once it was done, they'd have to clock out and wait until they could find more work. <laughs> so basically they were being wow. paid per article of clothing that was made, not per hour, and the employers fudged the timesheets to make sure you know that that was okay. The California minimum wage at the time was $16 a week. Yeah. Almost half of the garment workers in LA were making less than $5 a week. It's, isn't it the same now? <laughs> On top of that, they had to give back part of that money to their employers off the books as a kickback. What? Yeah. I've always heard of kickbacks, yeah. and I never really understood what it was. I guess it's just like, pay me or I fire you. Like, that's a kickback. Wow. Yeah. It's also hanging out with your chill bros. After finals is over. <laughs> you never been to a kickback? I've given money to my employers. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Beer been. money. <laughs> Haven't you ever tasted a cold brewski on a Friday night? <laughs> Finding actual work in these places wasn't even easy. The women would have to wander the floors of the different garment buildings, asking each company in there if they had any jobs. And businesses were constantly closing and opening, so work was extremely erratic. Mm-hmm. Life was hard in La Costura, as the Latina workers called it. Yeah. And unionization was out of the question. The city of LA had an anti-picketing ordinance since 1911, so demonstrations couldn't be made and any workers who did try to start anything even remotely resembling a union were fired and blacklisted oh that's so awful why would they strike though that's what i don't get what's wrong with kickbacks (laughs) what pay the man you're a woman Not that any of the unions that did exist cared about women anyway. Plus, the employers relied on the diversity of the women and the inherent language barriers in that and the sheer number of them to make it too hard for them to cohesively organize against them. In 1930, there was an attempt at a garment strike led by the cloak and suit makers that did not pan out because anti-union organizations like the LA Times gave financial support to the businesses that they were striking against during the strike to help keep them afloat. So they completely undermined them. On top of that, during the strike, there was a gas leak in one of the factories that caused an explosion that reminded people a little too clearly of the L.A. Times bombing that happened just, you know, 20 years or so earlier. And public opinion turned against the strikers. So that didn't amount to anything like us, much like us. So there were basically no rights for these women. And they could get away with this because they were women and mostly minority women at that. But then one lady in particular came to town, Wonder Woman, (laughs) Rose Pizota was born in Ukraine in 1896 and was raised Jewish and anarchist. So she came... My two favorite things, but My two favorite qualities in a woman, (laughs) in a Wonder Woman. She came to America and worked her way up the ranks as a labor organizer of Mm -hmm. the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, which was an organization founded in 1900 by white Jewish men to fight for women garment workers' rights on the East Coast. Now, Pizota had previously been blacklisted in L.A. for union activity, but on September 15, 1933, she came back to town to try to establish a local branch of the ILGWU, that's what we call it, for the women here who were being ignored by the men running the organization back east. The men back east felt that trying to organize the mostly Latina workers in LA was a lost cause, but Pizota disagreed, insisting that they deserve the same rights that the white women on the east coast were enjoying. Mm -hmm. Enjoying is a strong word. (laughs) Pizota got to work right away with a mostly word-of-mouth campaign, spreading the 
good word of the possibilities that a union could offer them. And the more people she talked to, they then told their friends, they told their friends, and she'd go to people's homes. And sure enough, people were interested. And on September 27th, a meeting was held at the Actors Theater, aka the Walker Theater, aka Walker's Orange Grove Theater, aka the Grand Theater at 730 Grand Avenue, where they laid out their demands of the Merchant and Manufacturers Association. They had nine demands. Let me count you off. Ten. Nothing. Nine. <laughs> Let's get the Dave Letterman top nine. <laughs> uh, my mother-in-law. So they had nine demands. They wanted union recognition, mm-hmm. a 35-hour work week, minimum wage, six holidays a year, regular hours, a chairman of each workshop elected by the workers, no work that they would have to take home with them to do, a time clock, and a committee to settle any worker-employer disputes. Hell yeah. Yeah, buddy. Yeah. I like the language. Time clock. Time. Yeah, clock. <laughs> Time clock, time clock, time, time clock, clock, time clock. We want a time clock. <laughs> when do we want it? We don't know. This, we don't have one. They agreed on these demands and that should they not be met, there will be a strike. So they submitted their proposal to the employers and the employers did not even respond to them. Wow. Then the ILGWU got the National Recovery Administration to mediate between the two parties. The employees then agreed to the wage increase and the hours, but nothing else. And the ladies had had enough. Strike. <laughs> we got a turkey october october 12 1933 sorry i gotta do some gotta gotta take a little strike of my own October 12, 1933, over 4,000 garment workers walked out of their factories and into the streets of downtown LA, and the employers promptly called the LAPD. (laughs) It wasn't a particularly violent strike, but about 50 people were arrested. Reportedly, some of the strikers were throwing salt and tax into the eyes of scabs that came to take their work. Wow. That's pretty badass, I must say. I don't know. Like, how do you aim a tack into someone's eye? I don't know. But, you know, people in the 30s, I imagine, had a way to do it. If that's probably how darts that, started. Yeah, that's how they passed their I time. I like doing this. The first game of darts was created <laughs> during this strike. One of the employers also got arrested for hiring a guy to bribe a cop $800 to arrest all of the strikers. As the strike dragged on, the strikers began putting out a semi-weekly four-page bilingual union paper called The Organizer to keep Ooh. people informed of what was going on. They also bought time on a Tijuana radio station called El Eco de Mexico and broadcast on a station here called KELW every morning at 7 a.m. in English and Spanish to keep people updated. Like a little like, this is what's happening today. Still striking. Good night. (laughs) Buenas noches. Good morning. (laughs) In Tijuana time. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's because it's different. The strike didn't get too much attention in the English newspapers, but La Opinion covered it in great detail. People were on their side. Also, the local bakers, butchers, grocers, they would donate food to the strikers. And many religious organizations came out to show their support for them. And then on October 25th, one of the employers, David Haster, got visited by the ghosts of sweatshop workers past, (laughs) and he had a change of heart and he decided to support the union. Then another guy followed after him. And then the next day, the employers agreed to negotiate. The negotiations were overseen by an impartial mediator who on November 4th called the strike off, even though the workers didn't really want it to end yet. They were having a good time. They were just getting good at darts. They discovered what a bullseye is. Then on November 6th, the great settlement was reached. All workers could return to work without any penalty. They got their minimum wage. They got their 35-hour work week. They got collective bargaining. They would no longer get homework. 
work, as they call it, and there would be no more child labor. In other words, they decided to concede that they were humans. (laughs) They got extremely minimal gains out of this strike, and nothing was even settled. Three years later after this, there was another major worker strike in the garment district. So what's the big deal about this strike? It got the local 96 chapter of the ILGWU formed, and it was the first major strike in the LA garment industry but so what? In 1933, there were 37 big strikes like this in California. It was the cool thing to do. It was like throwing tacks in people's eyes. (laughs) The importance of this strike is that it sent a message to Los Angeles that women, including women of color, deserve equal rights. Important specifically for LA was that it got Latina women involved in the fight for equality for Mm -hmm. the first time. Women, especially foreign women, were supposed to be meek and take whatever you did to them. But this strike surprised everyone that they all stood up and said, not anymore. Not yo soy. No soy. <laughs> no soy. No soy, please. Pazota knew that if these women could be organized, they would be powerful and mm-hmm. it set the foundation for the strong garment workers union that would develop over the next few years and now things are perfect for women because of this strike and I know that because I'm a man. <laughs> and that's the garment workers strike. It seems like a lot of the the overall theme of probably what we're all doing is like they protested, so what? They Because a lot of mine are like nothing really happened but like they sent the message. Yeah, I know. Like, yeah. It, like a lot of times it's like, well, well, okay, yeah. pack it up, put the signs away. We, yeah. we protested, nothing happened. But then 40 years later, yeah. something happens. <laughs> you pushed on the rock. Exactly. And then it tumbles onto into a trailer park or something. Because nobody likes trailer parks. No. no. I protest against those. All those fat cats in the trailer park. <laughs> Eating their golden steaks. What big deal. You can drive around in your house. Yeah. We all wish we could do that. Listen, I'm not going to play some blood diamond to put wheels on my house, okay? I'm a human being. I live in Beverly Hills. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to be talking about not just... It, I'm going to be talking about... He's broken. Uh, sorry. I'm going to be talking about some different protests and stuff that went on. Two of them in the 60s with the overall umbrella of the Chicano movement. So I'll talk a little bit about that. What's a Chicano? I'll explain it to you right now. This might be hard to believe. What is, it? Is, it a, is it an anagram? No, I'm pronouncing Chicago wrong. <laughs> the Great the Chicago, Chicago movement. movement. Yeah, the Great Chicago <laughs> Movement of Los Angeles. Get Bring it, back uh, the Cubs. Catalina Island's beautiful again. <laughs> the Bears. This might be hard to believe, but there are a lot of Mexican-Americans in Southern California. No, not my Southern California. <laughs> it makes sense seeing it. As, you know that we're like we're Mexico for like 20 odd years and then like they just threw America over us and we're like we're still here it's Mexican Americans you just tack Americans at the end of that not a tech in the eye though <laughs> now the largest populations of Mexican Americans are in South Texas New Mexico and California and we're all border states pretty much but our own what about Arizona oh, yeah, Arizona too right although they're not allowed there anymore yeah no they're not welcome there no they uh, Arizona has made a hard stance on that <laughs> it's the Trump of states <laughs> and here I thought Florida was no it's Arizona <laughs> Florida is a nice Mark Rubio. I know nothing about Mark Rubio. Except that he's Florida. <laughs> Did you know that our own East LA was the largest barrio in the country? And by the 60s, there were like 100,000 Mexican-Americans residing there. Oh my God. I know. I didn't know that. If you're unfamiliar with East LA, anybody's not who's... I was born in East LA. <laughs> That's me doing drugs. Oh, okay. I, I was wondering what that meant. East LA is bordered by Boyle Heights, El Sereno, the City of Commerce, and Monterey Park. It's that mm-hmm. big sort of Texas-looking shape. Mm-hmm. It's upside down Texas, I think. Uh, the <laughs> Chicano movement. sign of the devil. <laughs> the Chicano movement of the late 60s and early 70s were, as many people agree, spearheaded by Cesar Chavez, who led the United Farm Workers Union, who I promise we will get to in another <laughs> episode. There's almost too much to do in this short little one. And Reyes Terrarina, who attempted in the 64-65 to regain land grants to the federal government and different land corporations that take in after the Mexican War. Let's take a pause because that name sounds like Tejuino. <laughs> if there's anyone listening to this who has had Tejuino 
contact us. <laughs> we, we need help. Questions. To, we, we need help. Why? Why did you do it? We need help describing, trying to describe this taste. And if you have tasted tahuino and you like tahuino, please stop listening forever. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm curious. I'll, I'll, I am not curious. I'm cu- you, you have the board. Fans of tahuino, you have the board. Tell us what you like about it. Hey, I like <gasps> coffee and lemonade. In your hands. <laughs> coffee and lemonade. That sounds nice. How does that sound nice? Okay, black coffee and lemonade. That's what I mean. Black, hard black coffee, uh, lemonade. If you put like melted chalk into it. Okay. All right, let's get back on track. What's a Chicano? <laughs> <laughs> so it's the mid-60s. Everyone's radicalizing. Mexican-Americans were now becoming more political and socially conscious, and their shouts for improvements were beginning to get heard. Basically, the whole Chicano movement is a self-pride sort of thing. Like, you're a Mexican-American, and you're going to start taking pride in it, not only culturally, but, like, how can you make it better for the community? That's basically what Chicano is. It's, it's, it is the term that they made up in the 60s to kind of umbrella everything. That... Chicano is really a made-up term? Yeah, it's a made-up term. It's I not like... Everything's a made-up term. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, Hispanic is anybody from a Spanish-speaking region. Latino is any of the Latin American countries. Mexican-American. Wait a minute. So Hispanic covers like Central South America and Spain? I believe so. And Latin and, America covers Latino all. Latino is, is Latin American countries. Mexico, everything from Mexico down. With Brazilian language tied into it. Uh-huh. What is it called? Oh, Portuguese. That's what it is. No, it's Brazilian it's language. It's Brazilian. Sorry, it's Portuguese. You don't speak Brazilian? <laughs> Chicano was a, almost like a political statement about Mexican-Americans that happened in the 60s. Okay. I believe I'm doing that right. The whole whole thing about the Chicano movement was just taking pride and brown pride, Chicano pride, all that stuff. It was about like, because they had been through everything that happened at Chavez Ravine, everything that happened with Sleepy Lagoon, police brutality. It was just about like just being happy that you're living in East LA and like liking the culture and not being ashamed that you brought tacos as your lunch <laughs> to school. What's wrong with your hot dog, kid? <laughs> Why is it all cut up with lettuce in it? Why you got all those spices? Don't you want a nice bologna sandwich? Where's your mayonnaise? How come you're not drinking whole milk? Whole milk is whitened your skin. Oh, no. No. What happened to your skin? So while everyone else, like the Black Panthers and stuff, was like radicalizing, it was time for the Chicanos to start taking action as well. There was a lot of youth groups that they, were coming up. and They, they were tried s- to join the Black Panthers. They're like, eh. Did you read our name? I think that you might want to maybe start your own thing. Cause. <laughs> and the specific goal of a lot of the youth groups was... Malcolm Eckes. <laughs> I just made a really weird realization that Martin Luther Ray, which is Spanish for King, James Earl Ray was the guy who shot Martin Luther King, and Ray and King are the... Interesting. It's not. Um, the Chicano youth groups had a very specific goal, and that was to make a change in the education system in Los Angeles. Because among the ethnic groups of the city, the Mexican-American community had the highest high school dropout rate. Something like one to four would be dropping out, and the lowest college attendance. So they obviously saw that this was a big problem. It was affecting the way people prospered. So they like, well, if we fix this, maybe other things will start happening after that. Many people who grew up in these communities have agreed that they were being taught from a very early age to excel at laborer positions. They were pushed towards classes, like shop classes and home ec. Like, yeah, keep your hands busy. No, you don't want to be a lawyer. It wasn't just a problem for Mexican-Americans in LA. Chicanos had the highest dropout rates in the country. In 1960, the average grade achieved for Chicanos stood 8th grade compared to ninth or 10th grade for other non-white groups and 12th grade for any white groups. The white groups. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Canadians. The other immigrants. <laughs> the um, worst ones of all. <laughs> raining per- down on us from the north. <laughs> Some syrup speed. Faster than a speeding syrup. <laughs> the Canadians. Dun, 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 dun. A- Around that time, the per capita yearly income was a tragically low $968 compared to what the whites were getting, about $2,047 every year. Again, sorry. And the other non-white minorities were getting about like a thousand something. 
So they were even lower than, like, African-American? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Nationally, the Mexican-American communities faced the daunting task of rising above the limitations set for them. So with the examples made by Cesar Chavez and Tejinas, student leaders began taking charge, assuming key roles and mobilizing their communities around the themes of pride in Mexican roots. Like I was saying, like, Chicano pride, brown pride, they were trying to, like, push that forward and get everyone to mobilize. They wanted to build unity amongst Mexican-Americans of all classes, both rural and urban, of all generations. Youth groups started after that. The brown berets were forced organized (laughs) in this area. Uh, I think that the only people who should wear berets are the green berets the brown berets and maybe and, Dizzy Gillespie and that whoever Prince was singing about <laughs> what about the Black Panthers they look good in berets they do don't they I've never seen a brown beret so I don't know what it looks like do they actually wear berets or would they do they you know I saw a picture of them but I don't remember seeing a beret but I'm sure they do they're the only people buying berets they <laughs> just don't look good I'm sorry it says the guy who's losing his hair and wearing a beanie <laughs> permanently maybe I should adopt a beret you're, you're losing a hair but growing a beanie <laughs> Feel that? You feel that? Uh, is that one hurt? Come in a shunning. Does it hurt you when I talk about your impending mortality? <laughs> as long as you still got hair down there, it's not a problem. <laughs> The Brown Berets started in 1967. They were a group, kind of a militant group that wanted to... Uh, why Why berets? Like, it was a play on Green and green Berets. Well, I know that, but like, why are Berets the I, symbol I, of like militants? I don't question it. Ask a French mime. <laughs> so the Brown Berets started in 1967. That same year, David Sanchez, a teenage social activist, created an organization called Youth Citizens for Community Action, the YCCA, with the intention of fighting oppression and discrimination. Like I was saying, the Brown Berets were more of a militant group. Yeah, they're concentrated on social movement in the Chicano community, but it was, from what I can how a lot of fighting police brutality or like bringing up issues of police brutality yes i'm just thinking that's the village people song that didn't catch on a year later the the m is the most fun part to dance (laughs) two c's i will not be in this group again are you serious (laughs) the cop from the village people was the one that beat them up he beat up the Native American <laughs> while the sailor watched. <laughs> a year later, 1968, UMass started. The United Mexican American Students Group had formed a push for advancement for Chicano educational rights. There were two newspapers circulating regarding Chicanos as well, La Raza and Inside East Side. So mm-hmm. radicalism was in, damn it. So it seemed mm-hmm. unanimous in the community that action needed to be taken. Several activists came together to drop a proposal for better education. You had the Brown Berets, UMass, other activists met up as well. Among them, as always pointed out, the Lincoln High School social sciences teacher... Salvador Sal Castro. You had student leader Paula Crisostomo, and you had a college student Montezuma Esparza who went on to make the walkout movie. Name. Me too. Montezuma. Montezuma's a good name. That's a really good name. It's my favorite Knott's Berry Farm ride. <laughs> you won't get on it. I just like watching it. <laughs> It's too scary. It's too scary for me. He's going to take revenge. I don't like that. <laughs> revenge means I don't Seth. need that. I'm going to sit on this bench with Charlie Brown and watch everything. <laughs> Come on, Chuck. <laughs> I need some psychiatric help. Where's Lucy? I got a nickel. Is she in? <laughs> the doctor is out. <laughs> Walk out. Together, they drafted 36 demands to put before the Board of Education. The demands focused on things like bilingual education, bicultural education, Chicano staff members, not just teachers, but also working in the administration office, smaller class sizes, which they want to do by building more schools in the area, better facilities and an addition of a mexican-american history to the textbooks that are already out a very good set of proposals so of course it was denied <laughs> their needs were not met so the group decided to hold student walkouts or blowouts as they called them <laughs> blowout i'm having a blowout oh you gotta go to the hospital for that <laughs> the high schools they decided on for the 
walk out to Roosevelt High in Boyle Heights, Lincoln High School in Lincoln Heights, Garfield High School in East LA, Wilson High School in El Sereno, and Belmont High School near downtown, near the Tommies. Ooh. These are the schools that they pre-planned to have walkouts, but there was about 10 more that would also end up walking out hmm. or spontaneously like Venice High and Jefferson High. Now, I always heard about the walkouts of the 60s, but I never understood their immediate impact other than it being visually shaking. But the real threat of a student walkout was that the LA public schools are paid based on the number of the students that attend each day. So if you walk out, they don't get paid. Hmm. So you hit them right in the wallet spot. Now it was time to go forth and protest, but it was hard seeing as almost all their meetings were infiltrated by plainclothes policemen. Common theme. Common theme. And that's going to be coming up. They're just shifty, these cops. Why can't they always be wearing their uniform? Even <laughs> have pajama versions that look like it. My robe also has a badge. My sleep boxers has a holster <laughs> attached to it. They're always falling down. My boxers need a belt. Pre-planned or not, doesn't matter because the first blowout was not a regularly scheduled program of events. Although they had planned to walk out soon, the first walkout at Wilson High School in March 1968 was spontaneous or at least premature. A premature blowout? <laughs> I know nothing about that stuff. No. no Next never, topic. Never happens. Next episode. Episode <laughs> over. Good night. It happened after the school principal, Donald Skinner, canceled a, a Skinner. canceled a student production of Barefoot in the Park, oh, claiming no. that it was too risque for Mexican-American audiences. <laughs> I can't even fathom what he meant by that. But <laughs> They're not ready. Put your kids are going to love it. <laughs> but it was enough to push the students out of school, 300 of them, out the doors. Hmm. School administration attempted to stop them. They used senior students to block the main exit, which I hope didn't count as an extracurricular activity. It's an internship. <laughs> but the protesting students just used the auditorium doors instead. They just like, oh, whatever, blocked the door. They rattled the school entry gates back and forth. Inside the school was just another protest. Everybody was throwing books and fruits out the window. Fruits? Fruits. Where they get so much fruit? Lunch. The apples they were going to give to their teachers? Exactly. And teach more pissed. How am I going to eat tonight? How am I going to keep the doctor away? <laughs> so then once all this chaos is going on, the police and the press showed up as some students were forced to return to class. Many refused. They formed sit-ins. They continued to protest. They said they would not go back to class until the demands of the Chicano proposal were met. And with that, the Chicano blowout protest began. Boom. March 5th. What's that? Like four days later? The following Monday, hundreds of students stepped out of Garfield, Roosevelt, and Lincoln High protesting the... Uh, Odie. John Arbuckle. <laughs> Lasagna. Whatever the mouse's name was. Uh, unfortunate Monday. <laughs> we're walking out. Garfield, Roosevelt, Lincoln. All have walkouts that day. They walked out saying, blowout, blowout. What do we want? A fair education that equally benefits all students. When do we want it? Decades ago. <laughs> 2,000 students walked out of Garfield High between wow. the 5th and the 8th. My God. With them, they carried pamphlets on education reform, which is so cool to hand out. <laughs> the next day, March 6th, Roosevelt had another walkout. The principal tried to secure the gate, but the students climbed over it and into the arms of police officers who attacked them. <laughs> we got you. Jump, <laughs> Don't worry. Jump. Hit them. <laughs> All this March Madness, which the authorities impolitely refer to as civil disobedience, was resulting in arrests and beatings of many young high school age protesters, which is crazy to think that yeah. high schoolers were getting beat up by the cops, but I guess it happens all the time. <laughs> Luckily, they didn't stand alone. The student leaders and the staff activists, as well as the UMass and the Brown Berets, were guarding many of the protesters for this. Mm-hmm. March 8th, students at Belmont High attempted to blow out of class and onto the streets <laughs> to protest, but a school became overrun with the LAPD, itching to arrest and beat students back to class. But the other schools were more successful. 10 to 15,000 students walked out that morning and held oh, a God. rally at Hazard Park, which is near the county hospital. The closest school, Lincoln High, was a mile and a half away. At the rally, thousands of protesting students and activist organizations met in what was one of the first acts of mass mobilization by the Chicanos in Southern California, which is pretty awesome. So on March 11th, a week after the protests and schools not making any money, the LA Board of Education held a meeting that was attended by 1,200 people. 1,200. That's in- what that means. <laughs> which included students, parents, protesters, community members, activist groups. The first thing that was asked by the community members was that the pro- protesting students receive amnesty for the actions, so the board agreed. Over the next month, they discussed the terms of the 36 demands laid forth by the Chicano activists, 
educational proposal. While the board saw the need for the changes that the group wanted, they told them that they didn't have the money to follow through on some of these. Some of the things they proposed were to build new schools, like I said, to reactivate closed schools, as well as changing textbooks. It seems like a reasonable defense to say, ah, we don't have the money. I, I tell people that all the time. But it's not good enough to answer to students who are being pushed out of a proper education and have no chance at prosperity because of this. So student protesters did the signature move. They walked out of the meeting. Smell, <laughs> smell you later. Are you bringing up my stink again? Please don't talk about how smelly I am right now. I just can't concentrate. Just to clarify, I, I do shower. <laughs> I shower in skunk smell. I shower. My dog got sprayed by a skunk, and now I smell like skunk. Okay? Are you happy now? My eyes are watering. I can't read this. My eyes are shooting hearts out of them <laughs> because I've got a peppy you for you. I do not understand that you are a cat. I think that you are a fellow skunk. <laughs> You're a cat that walked under a paintbrush, and here I am to collect my dues. So on March 31st, the last day of March Madness, 13 of the organizers of the walkouts were arrested on conspiracy charges. Hmm. Apparently, it's a felony to arrange the disturbance of the peace and get in the way of the average school day functions. The 13 consisted of student and staff activists, members of UMass and the Brown Berets, and MAPA, which is the Mexican-American Political Association, the publishers of La Raza, and other community organizers. It's the blacklist of the Chicano movement, except you can name names and we didn't really care. We arrested everybody already. These 13 were known as the LA 13, and their names are as follows. Sal Castro, the teacher. David Sanchez, the student. Carlos Montes. <laughs> His Ro- wife. <laughs> Ralph Ramirez. Fred, Lo- <laughs> Fred Lopez. Carlos Munoz. Henry Gomez. Montezuma Esparza. Yeah. Eliza Risco. Joe Razo. Patricio Sanchez. Gilberto Olmeda. And Richard Vigil. Sadly, they came for Sal Castro and David Sanchez on prom night. Castro, oh, was, no. to- Castro was to be a chaperone when he was arrested. But if they don't kiss... <laughs> And That's Sanchez was two a, Back to the Future references so far. We'll, in this we will get them all in. How many do we do? Like every episode, though. Like at least nine. Ronald Reagan. He's coming. Just to be sure. The actor. (laughs) You can't do something like that to peaceful protesters and not expect a huge response from activists. People began immediately protesting and demonstrating outside of the Hall of Justice. But this time, there were some heavy hitters out to protest with them. Black nationalists, Students for a Democratic Society, the SDS, Senator Robert Kennedy, and Cesar Chavez were all showed up. The Chicano Legal Defense Committee and the American Civil Liberties Union stepped in as their legal defense, which is pretty cool. There was so much steam built up to the protest of their arrest, but many look back at it now and they see that once they were taken into custody, the attention of the activists shift from the education system to the release of the LA-13, which is a pretty sneaky move, because now it's like, oh, hey, remember what you were talking about? We don't. It wasn't until June that they released the Lincoln High teacher, Sal Castro. He was released on bail, walking out of the police station to 2,000 supporters who rallied outside. He wasn't able to return to the classroom to teach until October of that year, after months of protesters sitting in and doing other demonstrations. The focus seemed at that point to be splintered off into different causes and without a unified effort in one area with no push was strong enough to make a change. Many now say that while it sent a powerful message to the LAUSD, the walkouts were unsuccessful in achieving their goals. But something that is positively to thank for the walkouts is they awakened the political consciousness to the Chicano community and made many aware of the problems that Mexican-Americans face in the country. Long-term goals. Long-term goals, exactly. I think the three I did, you kind of see like it be built to a certain... Like they awakened it and someone else came and did a little more and mm-hmm. someone else did a little more. There's been an awakening. Have you felt it? I dealt it. You felt it, dealt it. That's the Jedi motto. (laughs) So those are the walkouts. Oh my god, that was abrupt. Well, that was 1968, right? Yeah. Let's take a step back just one year. The next couple ones sort of clump together in the same, you know, there's there's overlap. So we're going to take a step back Mm -hmm. from 1968 to 1967. All those bad decisions in 1968 are going to take them back. It's a clean slate, everybody. Everyone's still in class. Now it's time to talk about what happened in Century City. No. 1967. Hey, hey, LBJ, what exactly happened that time you came to L.A.? 
The year's the 1960s. Yes. Incense. Peppermints. Oh my God, the president's been shot! (laughs) Taking over for that dead president was a man named Lyndon Baines Johnson. Oh, LBJ, I don't like you. And in 1967, he was gearing up to get some fundraising to plant the seeds for his re-election campaign. As many presidents do, he decided to come to the home of loose funds and public influence (laughs) to do this, Los Angeles. There was going to be a $1,000 per plate fundraising dinner in his honor at the Century Plaza Hotel at 2025 Avenue of the Stars in Century City. It's across from the Annenberg space for photography. Oh, yeah. In case you're wondering. This hotel opened only the year before in 1966 and was the apex of luxury in the city. So many presidents ended up staying there over the years that it was nicknamed the Western White House. (laughs) But like old-timey Western, like Back to the Future 3. Saloon? Yeah. Yeah. Like Back to the Future 3. In 1969, this was even where Nixon had a party. Nixon likes to party. (laughs) I like to cut a rug with the youngest of them. My plus one is my surfboard. So Nixon had a party for in 1969 for the Apollo 11 astronauts oh. after they got back from the moon, still smelling like cheese. And I don't smell like cheese, <laughs> if that's what you're wondering. This particular dinner in 1967 would include some of the most powerful people in the city and would have a live performance by the Supremes. Oh, fun. I want to go to that. Yeah, it's only $1,000 and you get dinner. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you get to walk into a hotel. That's priceless. Sounds like a pretty good time. Yeah. You know, I'd I'd do it. I'd elect a murderer. (laughs) Unfortunately, unfortunately, something called Nam was going on at the time. Viet? The Viets. It was happening. The war in Viets had been going on for over 10 years already at this point, which Mm. I. Did you know the Vietnam War was like 20 years long? Yeah. It's It's, weird. It's awful. It's. Although we're living through something similar right now. Yeah, it'll never end. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> so it was going on for about 10, over 10 years at this point, but public opinion wasn't really that against it yet. It didn't happen. Not up- everybody knew someone who was dead yet. No. That was another yet. two years. And then suddenly everybody uh, knew someone who was dead. Yeah. So this was years before Kent State, two or three years before Kent State. Yeah. And there really were not many protests against the Vietnam War. But two guys, Irving Sarnoff and Donald Kalish, decided to use this opportunity to publicly demonstrate their group, the Peace Action Council's opposition to the war in front of the president while he was in town. Cool. Cool move, guys. So they filed for a parade permit during the time of the planned dinner. That's just a funny sentence to me. Every parade to me, I think it happens like the thing. Spontaneously? I think it happens like the end of Animal House where it's just like ramming speed and then you suddenly have a protest. Like I forget that you have to fill up forums and get police to like, hey, can you not beat us up this day? Not today, Not today, please. Well, today wasn't that day. You'll find out. Okay. They planned for it during the dinner and the route was to start at the Chevy Hills Park, go up Pico. Have turn, a nice little lunch, a tuna sandwich, and then nice. we're going to march. Nothing gets you going more than a nice tuna sandwich. <laughs> you go up Pico, turn left onto the Avenue of the Stars, pass by the hotel, and then end on Santa Monica. The hotel went to court the day before the march to stop it from happening, but no luck. It's too late. The wheels are in motion. You can't stop meep, a parade. Meep, 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 meep. Yeah, that's a squeaky wheel. So in the afternoon of June 23rd, 1967, people began to gather in the park to get ready for the march. Mm-hmm. There are also sorts of people gathered there. Hippies, commies, church people, my three favorites. <laughs> a lot of different activist groups joined in. Some were militant, some were not. But the most notable characteristic of the crowd was that it was mostly middle class white people who wanted to have their opinion on the war known. Many of them brought their kids with them, you know. It'll be your first protest. 
protest. Yeah. And what a protest. <laughs> Many of these kids were under 10 years old. Oh, no. So it was like young families. So the crowd was gathered and there were a few speakers, including Benjamin Spock, Live Long and Prosper. <laughs> He's the guy who wrote the Common Sense Book of Baby and Child Care. H. Rapp Brown, who is the chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating mm-hmm. Committee and convicted draft dodger Muhammad Ali came to talk oh, to them. Oh, cool. Clashes Clay came? <laughs> well, he changed his name to avoid the draft. High five, dude. Any way to get out of it. I wouldn't go. I've seen the footage. I ain't going. You can't make me. I'm not uh, going. It's I'm still, not, I'm not, I'll never go to Vietnam. No, I'll, I'll go to France. I'll be an expatriate, which is just a fancy title for an immigrant. <laughs> so then around 7.30 p.m., the march began. As they walked down the streets, more people joined the march and their numbers started to swell. Cool. Then they got in front of the hotel where the cops had set up a barricade, which cut down the four lanes they were marching in to one lane and it oh, caused no. a very serious bottleneck. I don't like this. I already see smoke in my head. It's about to get very scary. Single file. We want to beat you in order. <laughs> Factory style beating. And then somewhere around 25 to 100 of the marchers decided to stage a sit-in in mm-hmm. front of the hotel and they sat down on the street. And that's when things started to get ugly. Fudgesicles. Holy smoky robins. <laughs> but let's take a step back to see this from the other side's point of view. Even though there wasn't much anti-Vietnam stuff going on yet, the Watts riot did happen just two years oh, before right, this. So right, LA's right. attitudes towards big crowds of people with a purpose was a little bit you know, wary. They could burn down the auditorium to scare everybody like they did in the Watts riots. That's uh, that's a talk for another this. episode. <laughs> and having a president coming to town only four years after JFK was killed, uh, the yeah. LAPD was on high alert and wanted to protect the president at any cost to prevent getting the dark mark that Dallas will always have to be ashamed yeah, of. They let true. a president die. <laughs> they let a president die. <laughs> so the LA... We told you no book depositories <laughs> in Texas and you wouldn't listen! We thought nobody read there. <laughs> what is this? I guess they just keep their guns there. So the LAPD <laughs> PD was determined to keep LBJ safe. And it's not like their fears were unfounded because Robert Kennedy got assassinated the next year in LA. I just did the sign of the cross. Nobody saw me. (laughs) On top of that, Sarnoff, the organizer, had been called before the House Un-American Activities Committee Ah! in 1958 and he had refused to answer any other questions when it was labeled a communist. Good for you. So he was under investigation. Snitches get stitches. Yeah. 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 Seriously, what were the names of those guys that you knew? Listen to last month's episode to learn what a communist is. Yes. The Century Plaza Hotel hired four private agents from a company called International Investigation System to infiltrate... Ooh, I don't like that. Any of those words I don't like. The planning committee of this march to get information to feed to the LAPD so they could keep tabs and be prepared for whatever they might have planned. The secret agents reported back to the LAPD that the marchers had plans to release mice and cockroaches into the hotel. (laughs) And you stink and smoke bombs, which I swear I didn't swallow a stink bomb. (laughs) It's natural skunk musk. Break in, grab the president, either kidnap him or kill him. I don't know. Okay. What the agents didn't report to the LAPD is that these plans were quickly rejected and that the march was meant to be nonviolent. Did they not mention that this was actually a gag for a Bugs Bunny cartoon? Yeah. Did they not mention that it's Warner Brothers material? Oh, no, they went into the wrong office. (laughs) What they really didn't mention was that, as maintained by some of the organizers, that these agents themselves were the ones who were suggesting these violent and weird acts. Wow. Presumably so that they could get the group to go along with it and make them incriminate themselves and give the LAPD reason to arrest them. So because of this, the LAPD was prepared for something they thought was going to be a lot more dangerous than it was with a credible plot to kill the president using stink bombs. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay, picture this. He'll get enough of it in his nostrils and then he'll run into something. Maybe he'll clonk his head or whatever. He needs fresh air. (laughs) The president needs fresh air. It can't be stinky in there. 
So what they weren't prepared for was the size of the march when it yeah. arrived. L.A. wasn't known for having big protests at the time. This was before the walkouts yeah. and all that, the blowouts, sorry. And the police chief expected there to be around 2,000 people, mostly students. So when the police chief looked out of the ninth floor window at the hotel and saw a crowd of 10,000 people yeah. and a pileup forming near the front of the hotel yeah. where the police barricade was, especially since their permit was for a parade, so they weren't allowed to stop, he gave the order to the officers to disperse them. So now we go back down onto the street. Thin the numbers! <laughs> Call them! Call them! <laughs> the cops at the bottleneck of the march started giving orders for the protesters to disperse. Problem was, they were fenced in by police barricades all around, so there was yeah. nowhere to go. On top of that, the people further back couldn't hear the orders, so they kept coming, and the traffic jam got bigger and bigger and bigger. Then more people not being able to move, they were like, well, let's just sit down. So then they started sitting down. Then people towards the back who didn't know what was happening started to sing like the Star Spangled Banner and things like that and that eventually sort of like game of telephone style made its way to the front through the crowd and it turned into chants of we are the people we are the people meanwhile the cops kept telling people to leave but people either couldn't hear them or they couldn't move so nothing was happening and then the blue line was activated oh no 1300 cops in riot gear were mobilized and they began to push in on the crowd and of these 1300 about 500 of them took it upon themselves to get a little violent uh, I haven't got, whacked anything all year. <laughs> I gotta meet my quota. Old Billy Club's coming out to play. <laughs> William Club. <laughs> William B. Club. <laughs> so as the crowd got Jesus compressed Christ. more and more by the cops, there was less and less space for people to move. So to remedy that, the cops began beating people. Wow. They pushed and prodded whoever was in their way. People were falling over and getting trampled. And it wasn't just adults. Like, that's the worst part of yeah. this. There were cops seen hitting children, seniors, <sighs> and disabled people. There was, uh, God, I read horrible stories stories there was one this woman was like with her younger kid who had some sort of like tumor on his brain or something and couldn't walk well yeah and the cops kept pushing them and the mom was like don't like yeah my son has something going on with them don't stop pushing him and they kept pushing the kid fell over and they started stomping on the kid and the mom threw herself on them begging him don't hit him in the head you could kill him and they just beat them both the whole thing it quickly descended into pandemonium the cops pretty much like sheepdogs barking trying to corral all the protesters back some other incidents that happened there's an underpass under the avenue of the stars on olympic boulevard Uh that a bunch of people ran into for refuge from the cops that were pushing down the avenue of the stars which at this point was quickly renamed the avenue of seeing stars (laughs) the avenue of the scars (laughs) people were safe down there for a while and then the cops showed up Uh, and cars and motorcycles and they began to drive into the crowd and people had to literally jump out of the way to not get run over then once the cars somebody call the cops oh no (laughs) call the president oh (laughs) Oh, no no. (laughs) then once the cars left a line of cops came marching through in protest four young people sat down in the middle of the street the cops started marching towards them then a few of them broke off, ran at the four people sitting there unarmed and started to beat them furiously. Jeez. One of them was a woman. One witness said they saw one of the pilly clubs fly 10 feet in the air out of the cop's hand. They were hitting them so ferociously. Oh two of them managed to straggle away, but two were left unconscious on the road. Some of the people beaten in this march had ambulances called for them by the cops. Some were given like minor attention and then like, yeah, you're fine, go home. But the majority of them were just beaten and left there. I imagine I'll be Jay standing in the hotel like in the ninth floor like good good <laughs> is there any more jello <laughs> <laughs> i paid a 
$10,000 for this. <laughs> a group of marchers were forced across the Beverly Hills city limits where the LAPD couldn't follow them. And then there was this sort of face-off between the protesters and the cops yeah. with the boundary line dividing them. And just like, yeah, yeah, jeery, yeah, yeah, I'm jeering at you. And then the LAPD crossed the border and attacked them. <laughs> We'll fill out the paperwork later. <laughs> One guy was driving on the outskirts of this whole mess at Motor and Pico, mm-hmm. and he saw some cops beating a woman, and he stopped, and he demanded the cop's badge number. Then I presume the cop said, I'll give you a badge number. <laughs> and he pulled the man out of the car, proceeded to beat him while another cop got into his car and parked it so as not to impede the traffic. Good. And then he gave him a ticket because he parked in the red. Meanwhile, back in the hotel, the president almost had to be evacuated by helicopter Poor out of guy. the city. Yeah. Poor guy. I would hate you to get blood on your nice suit. Mr. President, you're going to have to take this meal to go. <laughs> the Supremes, they're not going to play one fine day. <laughs> the Zeppelin's ready. We'll take you. After about 90 Jesus minutes of these Christ. atrocities, the frenzy was over. The crowd had been either beaten back into Beverly Hills or back to Cheviot Hills Park. 51 people had been arrested. Many more were injured. Over 500 people filed complaints with the ACLU. On the other side, four cops were reported injured, one of which was from a broken blood vessel in his clubbing hand. <laughs> Poor guy. He's probably got workman's comp. <laughs> the media completely downplayed the severity of what had happened that night. Cops hurt in protest. <laughs> One cop gets a black and blue hand from doing what? I don't know, but don't worry about it. He's a cop. It wasn't until years later, if ever, that this event got the attention that it deserved. After yeah. less than a week with no interviews of any kind of any of the people who had filed complaints, it yeah. was decided that the LAPD had taken proper action to mm-hmm. remedy the situation. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot of debate in disagreement on what exactly happened that night and whether or not the police were actually justified in what they did. Even the organizers of the march years later couldn't agree on whether or not some of the radicals in the group set off the police or whether the police just completely unprovoked did this. The deputy LAPD chief was disgusted by how the LAPD had acted. Many of the marchers were angry with the organizers for not warning them that it could turn violent because they brought their five-year-old kids here. So it sounds like there was a lot of like miscommunication on both sides, but it also seems like portions of both sides were just itching for a fight like they really wanted it to turn into what it did it was a confusing situation and it was a confusing time for the entire country it's easy to say that the cops screwed up and i will (laughs) but it's also easy to understand that they wanted to do whatever it took to prevent la being the city that let the second president in a row get assassinated (laughs) which they genuinely seemed to think was a possibility the march itself was the first of the huge anti-vietnam war protests and was the first course of what was to come with all that stuff just as important this was the first time the police turned on the white middle class. Yeah. Like as one reporter said, it was the first time he had ever seen a white woman getting beaten by the police. Welcome to the club. <laughs> it was a turning point for the country. It wasn't just minorities anymore that were being, you know. Yeah, so they, they, they can't stay quiet anymore, yeah. right, guys? Now everyone was involved. Yeah. One good thing to come out of this is that LBJ didn't do much public campaigning after this. <laughs> it's even credited with being the start of his decision to not run for re-election. Meanwhile, on the day that this podcast comes out, March 1st, 2016, the Century Plaza Hotel, which is now the Hyatt Regency Century Plaza, starts its 2.5 billion remodeling that won't be completed till 2018. See you in 2018. So if you want to recreate what happened that night <laughs> in 1967, just trespass into the construction zone, yeah. and I'm sure the security guards will be happy to play along yeah. with you. Yeah, they, they love that. That was ridiculous. A rough one. That yeah. was horrible. Let's talk about another Vietnam protest, but along with that, I want to talk about, I'm very interested in one of the casualties of this one. There were three. One of them was a prominent figure in the Chicano community. His name is Ruben Salazar, and I just thought yeah. I would talk about him because I'm very I interested. I always thought he was a singer. I think you're thinking of Rudy Valley. Yeah, that's 
So I'm yeah. always thinking of Rudy Valley. Can't stop thinking about Rudy Valley and Frankie Valley. When Salazar was born in Juarez, Mexico, in March of 1928, but was raised as a U.S. citizen in El Paso, he grew up middle class there with his family. He attended Lamar Elementary School, and from an early age, he was very socially conscious and aware of wrongdoings. In high school, wasn't Richard Ramirez from El Paso? Or? I think he was. Yeah, hmm. I think yeah. That's what I kept coming to thinking. Like, was it in El Paso? But I didn't want to look it up because I want to go back there. I don't want to go back <laughs> to that man. I'm not. I don't want to talk about that man anymore. In high school, he wrote an angry letter to the Herald Post, where he would later work regarding a college team with a black player that wasn't allowed to play in El Paso due to segregation laws. He served two years in the U.S. Army, and upon his return, he graduated from Texas Western University in 1954 with a degree in journalism. Soon after that, he began writing for the El Paso Herald Post. He caused a storm in his 18 months as a staff member there. He interviewed a woman known as La Nacha, who controlled the drug trafficking in Juarez in the 50s. He, He's like the Sean Penn to her El Chapo. Pretty today. much. People actually liked him, though. He was constantly pushing for <laughs> I love El Chapo. <laughs> El Raton? It's my favorite crime boss. Who's yours? A living crime boss or dead? I'm kind of a Mickey Cohen guy, but I can see what you're going for. He's out there. Does Nixon count as a crime boss? <laughs> He is not a crime boss. <laughs> I'm much more of a lackey. Boss never. No, no. Salazar was constantly pushing for tighter control over illegal drugs that were coming through the border. And as a show for this, he brought a package of marijuana to the office to show everyone how easy it was. And they're like, <laughs> flush that, please. <laughs> it's so easy. <laughs> he also shook the community with an expose he wrote about the poor sanitation and cruel treatment that went on in the old city jail. He was able to get a first-hand experience of this cruel treatment and poor sanitation because the paper allowed him to pose as a vagrant and get arrested. Hmm. That's the kind of journalist that this guy was. I like that kind of journalist. Me too. Yeah. That movies get made about them, and you're like, "Oh God, don't do that." Except uh, this one. <laughs> no Ruben Salazar movies. Please, 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 Hollywood. I know you're listening. They're gonna get Sean Penn to play Ruben Salazar. <laughs> They're gonna get Al Chapo to play Ruben <laughs> Salazar. We know he's open for roles. He's taking offers. He got caught trying to get his headshots taken. <laughs> They wanted to take a mug shot of him. I got this. You want me to autograph that? <laughs> I thought I was going to dress like a cowboy for this one. Guys. In this mug shot, I'm like a wacky sailor. <laughs> so during his stint with the El Paso Herald Post, he had brief journalistic stints in Petaluma, San Francisco, Santa Rosa. So he's getting more familiar with California. Well, if you love California so much, why don't you marry it? I'm not ready to, but maybe we'll move in together first and see what it's like. So he moved to California. I feel like you're taking a jab at me. Aren't I always? Isn't it always just playing with the knife that's already sticking out of your back? <laughs> that I put in. Doesn't this hurt? This doesn't hurt. What are you talking about? What? Lost babe in the woods. What? What? Huh? What? So he moved to Los Angeles in 1959, and after working for some smaller papers, he started working for the LA Times. The smallest of papers. The smallest of papers. He eventually became the Mexican bureau chief for them, speaking for the Mexican-American community. And his brave journalism continued from there. The paper sent him to the jungles of Vietnam, where he was able to report on the conditions on there. He was almost killed when the Viet Cong attacked. He was a witness to the Tlate Loco. Did you just swallow your own tongue? (laughs) I'm going to try to say it really fast. Tlaxcala Loco Massacre of 1968, which saw the military slaughter of student protesters, which must have been devastating to witness. In Vietnam? No, 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 in Mexico. When he came back to the U.S., he focused on the Mexican-American community, writing about East L.A., which, like I said, was the largest Mexican-American community in the country. Mm-hmm. He became the first Chicano journalist to cover that ethnic group, and several of his pieces were about the, like, the critical treatment the city was giving that community, or the, you know, the what am I trying to say? The uh, under... Uh, underwear. That's what I'm trying to say. I uh, forgot to wear underwear. <laughs> the Poor treatment to the underprivileged areas, that's what I'm trying to say. He was one of the most outspoken people against the LAPD, and Chicanos respected him for that. That's the problem, though. I feel like this episode has kind of turned into anti-LAPD. We have, like, four of those episodes, and I think only one of our episodes is like, go PD! Yeah. Hey, they're not all bad. When the North Hollywood bank robbery is happening, yeah, we're on the LAPD those side. Those are some fine shots. Fine shots. <laughs> you nail him right in the neck. Ruben left the Times in 1970 to become a news director at KMAX, K-M-A-X, a local Spanish-language television station. While at K- 
KMAXI started investigating allegations of police brutality and corruption, and they went after the LAPD hard. Here are some of the things that KMAX was looking into. The suspicious death of six Chicanos at the sheriff's station in East LA was reporting as suicides. Hmm. He was also looking into reports of officers planning evidence on Hispanic defendants. In March of 1970, KMAX aired footage of LA officers beating Chicano students, and in July of that year, LAPD killed two unarmed Mexican nationals, Guillermo and Guillermo Sanchez, while raiding their apartment in search for a suspect that didn't exist. <laughs> the federal grand jury indicted the seven officers involved in that case, and then all were acquitted, which this could have been written in 2015. Yeah. Easy peasy. But not 2016. No, things are gonna change. Things have changed. Things are changed. Utopia. All of these investigations <laughs> led to two underground officers visiting Salazar and warning him that his investigations were dangerous in the minds of Barrio people, which I personally took as the people will revolt if they know how easily we can get away with killing people. <laughs> so six weeks later, the Chicago moratorium happened and Salazar would be dead. Uh. According to his friends, I, I, re- I read somewhere that he was starting to have weird, like a premonition about that, and he was starting to like clean his desk up and <laughs> and like do weird things like that, putting all of his belongings in a box. I just get this weird feeling. So around the same time, the Chicano moratorium was beginning to develop as a protest against Vietnam War. People were starting to put together because, in particular, there was a disproportionate amount of Mexican Americans that were being drafted, killed, and wounded in Vietnam. While Chicanos were about ten percent of the population in the Southwest in 1967, they accounted for almost twenty percent of those who were killed in the war. Just thinking. About about my own personal thing, uh, my own you know, life thing. <laughs> uh, thing. I do have like five or six uncles that were drafted in <laughs> into Vietnam. So it is kind of like, oh, that's not everybody, right? <laughs> the moratorium was the biggest protest yet and was supported by the Brown Berets, Mecha, which had just started. I think it's, what does it start? Was it Northridge or Santa Barbara? Cal State Northridge? Cal State, one of those two. I know it's housed it here. Have, uh, it's housed at Cal State Northridge. Mm-hmm. But I think it started, first rumblings was part of UMass in Santa Barbara. I don't know. All right. You're asking absolutely the wrong person <laughs> things are uh, good for me there was a really inspiring conference for the chicano movement in denver of that year a lot of participants were now putting together the moratorium some catholic we action were in denver earlier in this episode we were we can't get out of denver and a lot of veterans things to do in denver when you're protesting <laughs> a lot of veterans from vietnam everybody was kind of getting ready for it so on august 29th 1970 somewhere between 20 to thirty thousand people marched from belvedere park to laguna park to protest the vietnam war the high mortality rate for the american soldiers of color and it was peaceful protest this which was the largest anti-vietnam demonstrations held by a minority group in the u.s i think like of that entire era of all the vietnam protests from an ethnic group this was the largest one all of it until a closing rally which was gonna have music speeches tewino it was gonna have everything <laughs> so the problem starts with a liquor store that's around the corner on Woody Boulevard, the green mill liquor they get a call that, that we're out of tewino <laughs> the sheriff's department gets a call that people are starting to be rowdy outside uh-huh. so the sheriffs of course respond and they don't just respond like hey let's bring a couple people they come out full riot gear Everybody's at Every officer in the city <laughs> calling all cars. We need everybody from Santa Barbara to San Diego to come to this <laughs> liquor store. Yeah, and they started to surround the park in riot gear, which has to be terrifying as a sight. So, of course, a riot ensues, as riots do. So, fights break out. Everything's happening. Police are going around beating everybody. They start busing in cadets from different sheriff's academies to come in. Cops are beating up protesters. Protesters are fighting back. Everyone's getting hurt. Ruben Salazar breaks out into song. Uh, my name's Ruben Salazar, and I'm here to say <laughs> I don't like Vietnam. Wait. During all of this hubbub riot, two people die. 15-year-old Brown Beret Lynn Ward dies, and another man named Angel Diaz. As the mayhem erupted, Salazar did something that seemed kind of uncharacteristic to what I've read. He stopped at a bar for a couple beers with two friends. Silver dollar bar. It was hard to get a gauge on it because some of it I read he did it just as the riot started and then other ones is as it started to die down. But either way, like he's a journalist. He's like this brave journalist, but he's sort of like, yeah, it kind of didn't make any sense. Not saying that he was a drinker. It was just 
he should have been on the scene it seemed like from what everything i read he would have done that with him having supposed premonitions it probably was the best bet to like hey i'm gonna duck out for a while i know the cops are having fun the only way they know how so i'm gonna go have a beer <laughs> him and his two friends went to the silver dollar bar which is near luguna park over i think around the corner from the green mill liquor store here's the thing the people who run the green mill liquor store they claim to have never put that call into the sheriff's deputies hmm. so sheriff's deputies surround the silver dollar bar supposedly looking for a man armed with a rifle who as it turned out was captured hours earlier deputy tom wilson fired a 10-inch gas can into the bar, which fractured Salazar's skull and killed him instantly. Now, this particular gas can was not regulation. It was designed to use against barricades. There's a much smaller one that you shoot into, like, windows for people, and it, like, it breaks apart and tear gas everywhere. This one was meant for, like, hey, I'm going to shoot a wall that's not, I don't plan on breaking. And so he mistakenly shot a different one. Mistakenly? Mistake, yeah, he was mistaken. I guess they look a lot alike, but this one's meant specifically for this. According to witnesses, the officers left Salazar's body there on the floor for several hours without medical aid. Although the officers they, emerged... They tend to do that. Yeah, they don't really care much. Although the officers emerged without charges of wrongdoing in his death, some believe that they have targeted him as an assassination. A lot of people call it an assassination. It's a lot of weird circumstances. Yeah. After all of this, he's sort of seen as the martyr for the Chicano movement, which I don't, I'm don't. i pretty sure he never really wanted. <laughs> Salazar had a wife and three children that he left behind after the cops killed him. Yeah, so these two things are always tied together, really. It's And it's odd. It's one of the biggest anti-Vietnam demonstrations, and it, it's successful as any other one. Like, as if it gets scary because of the cops, then it gets remembered, which is a really <laughs> sad thing to think about. Two things that happened are now tied together. One of the largest anti-Vietnam demonstrations and the death of Ruben Salazar and it's now one big compact event. The movement and marching against Vietnam and all this positive protest and the Chicano pride is also going to be tied to ideas that the police have conspiracies and they assassinate people. Just like the Black Panthers have their thing with the FBI. The FBI, exactly. Now the Chicano movement has their thing. The LAPD. And it seems like it's now they're locked into an internal fight between the two of them where they'll never, they're never going to Will, will they, they get, won't they? Exactly. That's <laughs> get what a room. <laughs> and don't beat each other up. <laughs> Please make it a romantic. <laughs> get a cell. That I think covers Vietnam. What was that 1970? That was 1970. So I'm going to step back yet again to. This 19- is like the worst board game where <laughs> I keep stepping back. Like, not come one back. One step forward, one just step back. Just make it to 2015. We're going back to 1967. Okay. You just go- can't leave a that good year. year. That's the year I dropped acid. <laughs> and I just can't leave. I can't find it. I dropped it. I'm looking for my lost acid. <laughs> Let's talk. Talk about the black cat. Korloff, Lugosi. It's about gay people. Oh, okay. We're here. We're queer. And it's always been that way. (laughs) This next one is a landmark incident for the gay rights movement, but to lead up to it, let's experiment a little and take a quick look at the gay history of Los Angeles. Okay. There's been a gay community here since the native days when gay people were considered to have two spirits living inside them at once, and they were respected and they were honored for it. As the city we now know started to develop, it attracted a lot of gay people because being a young city, it was less a established, not bound by the social rules and traditions of the older cities back east. You were not going to get burned at the stake. No, no, no. No, no. You just get killed by the LAPD. (laughs) (laughs) So people were able to get away with being a little more free, a little more themselves here. Tons of old Hollywood movie stars were gay, lesbian, or bisexual. Mm -hmm. I I didn't even, like, I had no idea. You had no idea. Cary Grant. You didn't know Cary Grant was gay? 
I think he was bisexual, but I did not. Oh, really? Okay. I, 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 had, I had no idea. Yeah, I, I communist. <laughs> I will never watch North by Northwest again. He faked <laughs> At all least those not kisses. the same way. <laughs> so in June 1947, a woman who went by the name Lisa Ben mm-hmm. rearranged those letters, and you'll get it. I'll ah, give you a minute. Funny. It's also a man and woman's name. She was a secretary at RKO, and she used the office equipment available to her at her job to print Vice Versa, America's gayest magazine. Oh, vice Versa. Yeah, it was the first regular gay newsletter in the United States. Do you think that's why I know about it? Well, obviously. Because <laughs> you're gay, right? So in 1950, a man named Harry Hay, who I'm sure we'll get into in a future episode, he founded the Mattachine Society at mm-hmm. his house on Cove Avenue in Silver Lake, which is credited with starting the modern gay rights movement. In 1952, one magazine started in L.A. with their first issue coming out. Get it? Ah. January 19th. That's not, it came out January 1953, <laughs> making it the first national gay magazine. There was okay. also organizations and social clubs like the Satyrs Motorcycle Club started in 1954, which was made up of gay World War II vets and is now one of the longest running gay organizations in the country. They're also credited with playing a big part in creating the leather community because they were bikers. Oh. Yeah. Gay clubs and bars. Have you ever seen a leather daddy? <laughs> I've seen two leather brothers. Gay clubs and bars were a big deal because they provided a haven where gay people could come and be themselves after having to hide it from the rest of the world yeah. the whole day. So going into the 1940s, there were gay clubs like Brothers off of Central Avenue and even Club Alabama also off Central Avenue, which we talked about mm-hmm. in the Central Avenue episode, had regular drag shows. By 1966, there were 80 gay bars in LA. But just because they were meant to be safe havens didn't mean that they were always safe places. Yeah. Gay was considered a mental illness until 1971 and sodomy was illegal in California until 1975 so cops used to pick on gay people pick on that putting it lightly pick on them with bullets <laughs> they would entrap gay men I guess they would pretend to be yeah. gay themselves and then when they tried to kiss yeah. them or something they'd pretend. be like oh go you're under arrest I, I like this you're under arrest for stealing my heart thief <laughs> so they'd charge you with some bogus minor charge yeah. and then a lewd conduct charge so you could either take the minor minor charge and pay the fine or the lewd one and have to register as a sex offender. On top of that, if word got out that you were arrested for this sort of thing, you would lose your job and your family would probably disown you. Could we use the word blacklist for that? Mm. Pink list. Okay. It's Rainbow more... list. So cops were doing this so often in the late 40s and 50s that part of the Lincoln Heights jail was... Mm-hmm. The haunted one? The haunted one was dedicated to gay criminals oh. and referred to as the fruit tank. I don't like that at all. That is not a nice term for that. Cop humor. It's <laughs> funny. It's funny laugh. When we beat them, we'll say it. Fruit tank. Fruit, fruit tank. tank. One, two, three. <laughs> oh, this one's dead. <laughs> uh, two. <laughs> So this was the climate coming into the year 1967, but there was one part of town that was a gay social hub, the Sunset Junction area where Sunset meets Santa Monica and Silver Lake. In the 60s, there were tons of gay bars there and more would come and go every month. Cops would regularly come into these bars in plain clothes to make arrests or just to keep tabs. Mm -hmm. Maybe they were just curious. They seem happy. They're holding hands. They seem like they found love. That's why we call them gay. Because they're happy and I want to be. The gay bar owners had even formed the Bar Owners Guild to fight 
fight the entrapment and to keep their patrons safe. Okay. Some places would they would give cues, like when they recognized a cop coming into the bar, they would do something like they would play God Save the Queen oh. and things like that, and people would be like, "All right, uh, party's cool. over, time to leave." I like that sort of like speakeasy code stuff. Yeah, that's cool. But for the couple years pre 1966-67, there hadn't been that many bar raids. But then Ronald Reagan, the actor, the actor, he was elected governor. The governor <laughs> and the local police station in the area with its newly elected chief wanted to impress Reagan and make a name for himself. So the raids started back up again. What station was that, you ask? What station was that? I the Rampart Police Station. <laughs> At it again for a the first time. long history of being corrupt and mean <laughs> to everybody. So now that takes us to December 31st, 1966. New, New Year's, Year's Eve. 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 It's not a leap year. <laughs> a bar at 3903 Sunset Boulevard had only been open for two months. The Black Cat. So there's a big party there for New Year's. People having fun. A band called the Rhythm Queens was playing. Cool. There had been a costume contest earlier in the night down the street at the New Faces Bar, which is where Circus of Books now is. Oh. So because of that, there were some 15 or 20 guys in drag in the Black Cat. Also inside were about 12 plainclothes cops, keeping a repressed eye on everything that was going on. What's all the priests at? What is it? Short stills are too short. Where are the ladies? <laughs> so it gets to that time. Five, four, three, two, one. Happy New Year! And then, since it's New Year's, some of the men start kissing. One kiss in particular set them off was a woman who was there kissed her brother who was there in drag dressed as a woman. This made the cops very angry. It confused them. One of the cops grabbed one of the cooks who had been kissing and tried to lead him out the back door to arrest him, but the door was locked. So he, so he started moving him toward the front door. This caused a commotion as the cook, he started to resist being dragged away by this man who had never identified himself as a cop. Then a few of the bar patrons started to fight back, again, not knowing that this guy was a cop. Then about five minutes past midnight, all hell broke. It's a hell of a way to start 1969. (laughs) One of the other cops grabbed a pool cue and smashed one of the guys in drag over the head with it. Then more people got involved in the fight and all the rest of the the, (laughs) eight ball in the corner pocket. All the rest of the cops tore down the New Year's decorations, and they just start grabbing and beating down whoever they no could. No New Year's! No way! No way New Year's! No more progress. <laughs> they start beating him with pool cues, Jesus. billy clubs. Guys started getting dragged outside, but a couple guys ran to the New Faces bar to hide, but the cops followed them there. It's it funny. sounds like Michael Myers is a cop. <laughs> He's out there, I swear. <laughs> when the cops barged in, they asked who owned the place, and the person who owned it was a woman named Lee Roy. So then she came out, and they thought, here we go again, another oh guy God. in drag named Leroy, so they started beating her. Oh, Leroy, I'm sorry. <laughs> they broke her collarbone, left her bloody on the street before they realized, oh my god, it's a woman. Oh, oh my god, it's a woman. Oh, wait, it's a woman. We should have beat her two minutes less. <laughs> so while they were in there, they also grabbed the bartender, dragged him across the bar over broken glass, proceeded to break his jaw, his skull. They ruptured his spleen and didn't give him medical attention for 22 hours. This whole ordeal lasted about 10 minutes. Then five cop cars showed up at the Black Cat to take in the 16 people laid out on the sidewalk under arrest to the brand new Rampart Police Station. Many of those arrested were in drag because that sort of evidence would elicit the strongest response in the people who hate gay people who would yeah. be, you know. On the plus side, two 
of the cops had been hospitalized. (laughs) (laughs) And not just for broken hand vessels this time. By 1 p.m. January 1st, all of the arrested had made bail and they were released, but the police harassment didn't stop there. Over the weekend of January 7th and 8th, the Ram's Head in Silver Lake and the stage door on 6th Street were also raided. Uh From January 2nd to the 20th, cops were staking out and going into new faces every night, so people were too afraid to come in until the bar closed on the 21st after having been open for five years. The Black Cat got their liquor license suspended and tried for five months to get it back until they closed on May 21st, all while the cops warned that if any of them tried to fight back, they were going to shut down every single gay bar in the city. Then come January 26th was the trial for those arrested in the Black Cat raid. Money was raised for the defense by several gay organizations, but still finding a lawyer was tricky because most lawyers feared that if they represented a gay client, people would think that they themselves were gay, yeah. and you, you just can't have that. And I, I, how am I supposed to explain myself? No, I'm not gay. I like I like the ladies. I, think I like the way they smell. Sure, I wonder every once in a while, but yeah. who doesn't? They did find a lawyer in Herbert Selwyn. Herbert Selwyn, yay! But the court was obsessed with hearing about the kissing that had taken place. <laughs> they were so obsessed with the, the like the <laughs> the people on trial were like you. They were beating us. Like, those cops there were beating us, and they were like, yeah, yeah, but who was kissing who? How much lipstick did you have on? What is it like? Like, how do you know? Like, how do you know when a guy's going to be into it? And they just kept bringing up the kissing. They're like, let's talk about the kissing. In the end, nine were cleared of charges. One had a hung jury because he claimed to be straight and made a big show of kissing a woman in the halls between sessions, so everyone got confused. They didn't know what to think. Four were charged with kissing someone of the same sex for two to three seconds. One was charged for 10 to 15 seconds worth of kissing. One was charged with a peck on the neck. This is ridiculous. Repression court is in session. (laughs) In other words, they were convicted of lewd conduct. Of these, two had to register as sex offenders. Charles Talley. Talley me banana. He he wished he could tally me banana. (laughs) He never got the chance to. And Benny Baker. They took the case to the California Court of Appeals, who wouldn't hear it. Then they went to the U.S. Supreme Court, wouldn't hear it. However, the lawyer Selwyn was arguing that these men should be granted equal rights under the 14th Amendment, making this the first time in U.S. history that a homosexual fought in court that they deserve the right to be equally protected by the Constitution as yeah. a heterosexual was. This was the first time that wow. ever happened. They lost, but still, the seed was planted as it yeah. always is. But the story doesn't end there because we haven't even gotten to a protest yet, so it can't. The timing of this was perfect. If you could call it perfect. Just three months before the Black Cat Raid, cops had beaten up a bunch of anti-Vietnam hippies on the Sunset Strip. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's the usual everyday stuff going on with the LAPD against Latinos, African Americans. Yeah. So there was a multi-location demonstration planned for February 11th, 1967. And after what had just happened to the gay community, they were like, oh, us too. I want to be part yeah, of it. Yeah. So the group that made this so was Personal Rights in Defense and Education, or PRIDE. PRIDE was started in 1966 oh. by Steve Ginsburg in LA, and it was a gay rights group. Wait, go one more time, repeat what PRIDE stood Personal for? Rights in Defense and Education. That's great. They were kind of radical, mm-hmm. uh, totally tubular, <laughs> <laughs> and they're where the term gay pride comes from, from their name, PRIDE. That's great. They also had a newsletter that after the Black Cat Raid was taken over by Richard Mitch, Bill Rao, and Sam Winston, who revamped it into a magazine that they printed at the print shop of ABC where Rao worked, and they renamed it Pride Advocate, then the Los Angeles Pride, and now today you know it as The Advocate. Oh. So that's where that came from. Pride 
McBride attempted to rally the troops, but do ask, do tell these troops, telling its members to join Negroes, Mexicans, hippies against the establishment war on minorities. I'm making a fist right now. But a lot of people were just too scared to join in because they were afraid of the violence that they had seen the police committing, which is something that should never happen in this country, that people are afraid to do anything. But the organizers took that into consideration. Part of the reason they wanted to demonstrate on the same day as all the other groups was because then the police force would be spread thinner across the city and there would be less risk of violence. It wouldn't have 19 cops beat me up. I have like six. Yeah, I could deal with that. So February 11th came with protests by hippies on the Sunset Strip, African Americans in Watts, and Latinos in Pacoima and Boyle Heights, and a reported crowd of between 300 to 600 LGBT and LGBT supporters Uh at Sunset and Hyperion right next to the Black Cat formed with people holding signs like Peace and Silver Lake. It was being monitored by about 50 cops, but they kept the protest so orderly so they wouldn't give the cops any excuse. <sighs> like, they wouldn't even, like, if, don't yeah. throw your gum wrapper on don't, the floor. Yeah, no eye like, contact. Don't give them anything. Yeah. They were too scared to even announce that this was a gay rights protest, so they said, we won't say who we are tonight, but look around. We promise that after tonight, the love that dare not speak its name will never be quiet. They were speaking, of course, of Lord Voldemort. <laughs> so the protest ended without any more violence, and this whole incident was mostly forgotten. <laughs> the Stonewall riots in New York City, they get all the credit with being the start of the LGBT rights movement, but that happened two years after what happened at the Black Cat. So this wasn't the first gay rights demonstration in the country. It was definitely the first in California, and it was the biggest one that had happened so far. This was where gay people decided that they weren't going to take it anymore. One of the religious newspapers in town at the time warned its readers that homosexuals who have always been dependably meek are fighting back. (laughs) The stand at the... Dependably meek. The stand at the Black Cat paved the way for 1968 when Reverend Troy Perry started his very gay-friendly Metropolitan Community Church in Huntington Park. Then the first gay inn started happening in Griffith Park. And then Stonewall happened. And then L.A. had the first Pride Parade in 1970. So it can really all be traced back to the Black Cat. Some people compare that place to a place like the Edmund Pettus Bridge, which sounds kind of silly because it's a bar in Silver Lake. (laughs) But when you think about it, it's not really because just like African Americans, gay people had to fight to where they are now. And this is where it started. The Black Cat became many different bars over the years, but it wasn't until 2008 that it was designated a historic cultural monument, and it got a plaque that incorrectly designates (laughs) it as the location of the first LGBT demonstration in the country. It wasn't. It is, however, the first gay historical site in California. As of 2012, the Black Cat is back in existence. This time, it's just a restaurant by the same people who do the Village Idiot. But my favorite part of this whole story is that, in a way, the whole gay rights movement was started by the Rampart Police Department. (laughs) The ultimate irony. Because they don't like anybody. Monsters. Yeah. Monsters. Gay people. (laughs) The nerve. Well, luckily, my next one has very peaceful police because by this time, the Rampart Police Department has been shut down. (laughs) Reformed. Reformed. They're cool now. Yeah, they're pretty cool. Cops? Pretty cool. Except for... (gasps) (laughs) Long list. The last two protests I covered were Chicano-specific, and although the Chicano movement made up... we noticed. (laughs) And although the Chicano movement made up a significant portion of this next protest, they were not the only ones that were affected by it, and we are not the only city to protest or to fall under the attack of the Immigration Reform Act of 2006, which is what I'm going to be talking about. Ooh, boy. The legislation that passed by the U.S. House changed illegal immigration from a misdemeanor offense to a felony charge. 
This would affect employers who hired illegal immigrants. It would require that churches check the legal status of parishioners before giving them aid. You better say sanctuary in English. That also ordered the construction of fences along a third of the U.S.-Mexican border. The law didn't just affect Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, but immigrants of every race trying to make a life in this country. But the ordering of the U.S.-Mexican border is a particular sting. Like, say the same thing about Canada, and I'll say it's not racist. <laughs> Nevertheless, the immigration population of Los Angeles was not having it. The marches started in Chicago on the 10th with between 250,000 to 500... You mean Chicano? Chicano, yeah. The city of Chicano in Illinois. Chicano, Illinois. They started on the 10th between 250 to 500,000 protesters hitting the streets. Right. Then they moved to Phoenix by the 24th with about half those numbers, but just as much spirit. On the 25th, we got ours. The Saturday edition of La Opinion featured a lead editorial calling on its readers to come out for the march, so they did. More than 500,000 people, it's half a million, marched on Los Angeles to show solidarity with those who came to this country for a better life. And I've seen the pictures, and it is insane. Like, you cannot <laughs> see, like, pavement. It's just, like, <laughs> buildings, people. Which is how this city will be if we don't put an end to this immigration. We don't want Bronzeville again. <laughs> Many wore white as a sign of peace, which try to explain to a police force itching to clobber someone that they, <laughs> they just want. I just want the, peace. I want it peace. It makes the blood show much easier. <laughs> we can mark how much damage we've done to them. <laughs> it really pops on the front page. <laughs> they just like their blood vessels. <laughs> they marched with the flags of their countries of origin, which were predominantly Central and South American countries. Someone pointed out that a majority of the flags that they were being carried were American flags, because that's what people wanted to be part of. They wanted <laughs> to be part of America. They marched through downtown on Spring, Maine, stay on Maine, and Broadway. There was a truck for a Fox News van parked outside of, I think, City Hall, and people were surrounding it and booing it at some point, which is pretty funny. Cardinal Roger Mahoney of Los Angeles, so the Roman Catholic Church, was also defiant towards the bill, since it would require that he turn people away from his church, and he wasn't about that. Attendance of the 2006 March March, the March March, surpassed the March, number... March March March. March, March, March. Surpassed the number of people who protested against the Vietnam War and Proposition 187, which was a 1994 state initiative that wanted to deny public benefits to undocumented migrants, which never passed, thank God. <laughs> These marches continued on through the country from Virginia to Tennessee to Ohio. President Bush then pushed for a guest worker program, which would be more lenient on the immigration bill and migrant workers, which many people were pleased about. But the problem came from people like citizens of America who supported this bill. Although there was a massive opposition to the crackdown on illegal immigrants, a Zogby poll done late in 2005 showed that 62% of Americans surveyed wanted more restrictive immigration policies. <laughs> so now it was time to show the American public who supported tighter immigration regulations how hard it would be to live in this country without immigrants working on the jobs. Los Angeles got an even bigger march on May 1st, not March, March, May March, <laughs> on what people refer to as the day without immigrants. I don't know if you remember that. Do you remember that? I think I remember that happening. I also remember a movie coming out like yeah. a day without a Mexican. Can, yeah, like that's, that. that's a thing that happened too. <laughs> this was another nationwide protest that saw 1.5 million people on the streets protesting. When was this again? May 1st, 2006. Yeah, I think yeah. I remember being at CSUN and it was like, we're oh, all... that's right. Yeah. yeah. I sat firmly and I've never sat tighter in my seat in my <laughs> life. What are they coming for? What do they want and when do they want it? I, I couldn't hear them. In LA, the rallies were scheduled for 4 p.m. so school-age kids wouldn't miss classes and for those who wanted to miss school to protest, you could do that too. <laughs> in total, I think they said 72,000 middle and high school students, about one in every four students, were absent from school May 1st, 2006. What was the other one in four? Uh, uh, dropout rates. Yeah. In 19... Interesting. I think that's a nice poetry. It is, isn't it? <laughs> Traffic went down 90% in LA and Long Beach. Once a... <laughs> so that's who we have to blame. <laughs> Once again, we saw half a million protesters on the streets of 
of LA. 200,000 march to the city hall in the morning. 400,000 march along Wilshire Quarter by the evening. Others plan to attend... Stay tri- away from the Century Plaza, trust me. <laughs> they will bottleneck you and LBJ will come <laughs> back from the grave. I want dessert. I don't know what LBJ sounds He's like. He's very Southern. <laughs> I want dessert. And I want dessert and I want it now, but first I want to watch all those heads get burst in. <laughs> burst them in. Burst them in, Burst them in, Burst them in deep. Now, come on. No neck like... Barney Rubble. <laughs> Others plan to attend church services or to join the protest during their lunch breaks. Some workers requested paid time off or shifted their regular work schedule just so they could take the time out of the day to be an activist. <laughs> this is how important this was to people. Businesses all over the country were closed when people walked off the job. These were all peaceful protests. There's no riot gear. There's nobody getting bloody anywhere. <laughs> the overall vibe was very positive, although a riot broke out in Vista, California, but that's too south for our concern. But I think we were the state with the most protests. <laughs> Modesto, Santa Barbara, Orange County, San Francisco, like all up the state. The effects of the protests are still largely unknown. The bill had passed the previous December, so it, we, we wasn't about stopping it. It was just about letting people know that we didn't like it. Bush eventually became not president. I hate, and nobody is happier than me about that. I think what the bill had the most effect on was just increase in border patrol. I think that was the biggest thing from what I read. If there was a huge decrease in profits for companies that saw walkouts that day, they are not sharing that information. <laughs> but a message was sent to the White House that all over the country, a large portion of the citizens and non-citizens are willing to step out into the streets to show support for people who are here for better opportunities. And this is something that we are still fighting for. Future president of this hellhole, Donald Trump wants to be president of... <laughs> yeah, president it's starting of, all over again. It, it, I'm ready to march Every this Every 10 time. years. He wants the president of Mexico to pay yeah, to, to build a wall. I think the president of Mexico responded by calling him a chump? I don't know. <laughs> Put me on the Mexican side if that's the case. Oaxaca McClay sounds pretty cool. That's the immigration march of 2006. I remember those. I, I went on yeah. a march, but I think it was like 2004. I don't yeah, remember. I remember it. it I didn't, know what, I didn't yeah. know what was happening, but yeah. I knew something happened. Little boy with his eyes closed. Yeah. I've had my horse blinders on. <laughs> I'm just trying to graduate. I think with the three that I did, I saw like, for each one, it was the largest of its time. Like, each protest was like, that's the most it'll ever happen, and then it just kept getting more and more. <laughs> yeah, mine were all like, not necessarily the biggest, but it's the first. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I know that. I noticed that with yours. But, you know, good for L.A. Yeah, good for L.A. Yeah, we, we stand for something. We exactly. make a point. It's time this city shook things up with a way that wasn't from a fault line. <laughs> <laughs> one, two, one, two, one, two. Listen to that. Yeah. yeah. You know, You'll get it later after funny. we all it's live funny. in this, this sea. Me, it's funny. Once California breaks off from the United <laughs> States and we float into Japan, you'll think it's funny. This is one of those episodes that turns me against the LAPD again. It fluctuates like episode to episode. Does it? But when when you were talking like how many times, how many episodes were like, wow, the cops are mean people. Yeah. A lot. And through different decades. Yeah. Well, here's what I'll say. The bad cops make the good cops look bad. And the good cops make the bad cops look bad. Yeah. Because they are bad. Bad to the bone. (laughs) And they'll show you the bone. It's your bone. (laughs) I'm bad to your bone. (laughs) I'm bad to your bone. This is not a very cop friendly episode. But you know what? Yeah. It's not supposed to be. We're taking side. What can you do? We're reporting history as it happens. <laughs> Here's a call to action. How about all of you walk out right now, yeah. go to your computer, leave us a review on iTunes. Walk out of your iPod and into your computer. And hey, just don't protest us, okay? Yeah. Five stars. Five stars. When do we want it? Soon. <laughs> we don't get any. We need to make money off this thing. We're so hungry. We haven't eaten in, what, three hours? I'm eating this microphone by the end of this. I hope by next month. I ate the pop guard. <laughs> I like your popcorn. Yeah, leave us a review on iTunes. You know what? Tell your friends about us. That's yeah. something we haven't tried before. Let people know that this is something to listen to. Get our name out there. Yeah, you're a big fan of Lost LA, but you wish that it was a little sillier. Uh, Give LA Meekly a try. You think that they didn't just quite get it right? Here we are. We got the true history. Yeah, tell your friends. Leave us a review on iTunes. It e- makes it eats us. 
iTunes. <laughs> it makes me. It makes it easier for people to find us, yeah. and it makes us more noticeable. Email us suggestions. If you have suggestions for episodes, if you want to hear something, let us know. We're very mm-hmm. happy to take suggestions. Emails la.meekly at gmail.com. Like you said, like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram, la underscore meekly. Follow us on Twitter, la meekly. If you haven't done it already, you're just like everyone else who <laughs> listens to us. Our home base is our Tumblr page, lameekly.tumblr.com. Yep. Uh, we love you. Oh my god. Is it true? Not you. Me and you love them. Well, you know me either. (laughs) See the black cat. (laughs) It's just a restaurant now, but we still hang out. I go shop and drag every week. (laughs) Nobody gets it. I'm done. Yeah. I think we've had our say. Yeah. Go out there. You know what? Our forebearers fought for our rights to experience this city in a way where we're not beaten down by cops. So let's get out there. And party hardy. In the streets, in other people's houses. Break as many laws as you can. The cops can't do anything to you. No. This is Greg. This is Daniel. Saying that has been L.A. Meekly getting beaten during peaceful protests since 2013. Wow. Whatever that sound is you put at the end. (laughs) That's me burping. (laughs) 